Good afternoon and welcome to this week's Neuroscience Podcast hosted by the Neuroscience Institute at the University of Texas at San Antonio. We are pleased to introduce to you this week's guest and featured speaker, Dr. Johanna Schul from the University of Missouri at Columbia. Dr. Schul is a professor in the Division of Biological Sciences. Dr. Schul, welcome to UTSA and to our campus. We are so pleased that you can be with us. Thank you for having me here. Joining us for the discussion today is Charlie Wilson. Hello. And I am Ramaratnam, sitting in for your regular host, Sama Qureshi. She graciously acceded to my request to moderate this discussion. She joins us as well. Thank you, Sama, and thank you for being with us. Thank you, Rama. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, today we are going to discuss one of the central problems in sound perception. At this moment, I'm the only person talking, but just as no man is an island, so also is it that no sound is produced in isolation. Whether we are in a social gathering, in a restaurant, or at a family dinner, we are subject to an endless barrage of sounds originating from multiple talkers, machines, the television, and so on. How is it that we are able to focus on one particular sound without being obscured and confused by interfering sounds? This problem, which is famously called the cocktail party problem, is central to our ability to extract a meaningful sound while rejecting irrelevant sounds. Without this ability, we would simply go mad. So how does the brain solve this complex problem, a problem that engineers have not been able to solve? Now, Johannes works on the neurobiological mechanisms underlying the cocktail party problem, and he does so in the vocal communication system of katydids, which are a class of orthopteran insects. Johannes, could you please tell us about your research into the cocktail party problem in katydids? How do you go about investigating it? And why do you think the katydid is such a useful model for studying it? Well. Now maybe I start with the last part. Why this is? I think this is a useful system to to work with. So katydids do two things with their ears. They have very specialized ears. Uh, ears have evolved in the context of acoustic communication. Females finding calling males to mate, and later in evolutionary history, pre uh, bats appeared, being a important predator for them, a dangerous predator for katydids, and then a second system auditory system evolved, or a second function of the auditory system evolved, which is detecting bats in the auditory scene of males and, and having behaviors and to avoid attacks from bats. Uh, since the ear is so specialized, it has evolved for such defined problems, so such relatively narrow problems, uh, it has very few elements. The whole hearing system consists of very few neurons. Uh, it's very specialized uh, in that, and that allows us access to it and asking questions, asking the system questions that would be difficult in more complex vertebrate systems to answer. So this is um, um, But you've taken a very high level, what is called a cognitive or perceptual problem, which is the cocktail party problem, and you're actually able to look at single neurons to, to understand how this problem is solved in the brain. How, how do you go about doing this? Well, I'm not sure whether we're really working on the cocktail party phenomenon or that whether, I'm, I'm not sure whether this analogy is, is necessarily helpful. It, it's, it, but it, it's the, the general problem that hearing systems have is that you have to form useful representations of objects in the auditory scene, useful for the organism, relevant for, uh, for the organism, and that you have to detect the uh, appearance of new objects in the auditory scene. And and insects, these katydids, do that in the same way. So if they have similar problems, if they are tending to male calls, either because they are females and want to approach one, or 
because they are males and they interact with other males acoustically or aggressively uh, or just because they are around there where other males are calling and, and trying to mate, uh, they still have to be able to detect other important signals and that's in this case bad signals in, in the auditory scene. Um, whether the actual cocktail party problem as we typically think of that, so having a bunch of speakers and we are focusing on one of them, uh, actually applies here that that would be under debate. I mean, there are many males calling in the system, but it's questionable that the female actually hears more than the loudest one, so that they actually don't, I would not go as far to say they solve the cocktail party problem similar as we do. This might just be, you end up at the loudest one if, if you approach that. The other question, this change a different system class in the auditory scene, which would be predators, that clearly applies to them. So the way I understand it works is basically uh, signals in different frequency bands don't cross-adapt. And so right. uh, one, a signal that's got, that is predominantly in one frequency range will adapt out on a particular neuron, not on every neuron, right. I guess, but just on yeah. the novelty right. detecting neuron. And then a signal that comes in a different frequency range will still evoke a response, even despite the adaptation of the previous signal. That seems to be the solution to that. So the, the hearing system is at this ascending level, so where it goes from the sensory organ to the brain where decisions are made, behavior is generated, uh, through a bottleneck of cells, there are only three cells on bilaterally paired cells, so three right, three left, uh, and they have specialized functions. Two of them transmit male calls, and one seems to transmit or detect novelty or transmit bad cries, however you want to define uh, this here. Perhaps it was dinosaur cries at one time. <laughs> well, I'm not sure dinosaurs would have made noise to try and eat katydids. That, that's why uh -huh. probably it was best, but it might well be an older an older function. That's this just from today's function. We would argue it it is bats that this neuron detects, but we don't know what it evolved in. That that is inherently a problem, and, and that might have set them up on a di very different path from what they do today, uh, or that would be useful today. So, uh, so male today. calls are typically stereotyped in a particular frequency band. Yes. In all katydids, or species variability, and I guess environment would make a difference too, well, like the, waterfalls and things. Yeah. So that that that's actually. Very good point. So our katydids are are unusual for katydids that their calls are low frequency only. What for them is low frequency. For us, it's actually relatively high frequency, but for us in this audible range, the probably the ancestral katydid stage state is a broadband call, if not even an ultrasonic call. So 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 high frequency call in, in that that seems to be the. Um, it's the more prevalent pattern in katydids, and it's probably the ancestral pattern. Uh, it seems that ours, this group neoconocephalus that we work with, has you uses the low frequency band as an acoustic niche where they have no competition, and so where they can basically go in there and they are not bothered by anyone else's call, and so they can use acoustic space, their their own bandwidth, and that where no one else signals, so they are not in acoustic competition with other groups. In that respect. I'm not sure. So it is somewhat an unusual situation for katydids. It's not the archetypical katydid in there. Um, but it's important not to call in the bats 
frequency range because then you would get adapted to bats and so in one of your experiments right. you get you adjust the the bat-like uh, cry right. into the same frequency range as the natural call right. and now the animals are not the, they're sensitive not to the right. bat it, anymore. It has to be it has to be separate from each other. So what we have not tested because it doesn't apply to our system, we have a pure tone, almost pure tone male call and we have ultrasonic bats in that. Uh, what we have not tested is how complex spectra, how, how much they can overlap or how different in relative amplitudes they have to be for this mechanism to work. Uh, the, the neuron has the same basic response properties throughout any candidate group that I got under the knife. And this is a lot of them. So we've, we've measured over 10 species in five or six different subfamilies uh, with wings, so flying candidates, non-flying candidates, high-frequency calling ones, low-frequency calling ones, uh, diurnal ones, nocturnal ones, and the, the neuron seems to do has the same basic response property. So detecting this novelty and following basically the same rules, so doing it when the spectrum is different. So in your in your experiment, you essentially uh, you present what is a simulated male KDD right. call, a, and then somewhere in the middle, suddenly a bad yeah. call at a different frequency yeah. appears. Now, if you were to make the these are pulses, you're presenting right. pulses. pulses. So if you were to present the two pulses at the same rate, both the bat and the simulated simulated bat yeah. and simulated males. Uh, but you are only having a difference in the frequency bands, would you still get the novelty response? No. Well, I, if the f rate of both were low mm -hmm. in this range where bats are, then we, you would get a response to all of them. Because all, neither would adapt. Neither, neither would adapt. adapt. Correct. Uh, and if the rate is high, then then they both go out. They both go out. Right. So there is both a complex, uh, there is both processing of spectral information and temporal information. Well, it's it's really a temporal process. So it's a, the neuron is it, a stimulus-specific adaptation. I think really this is the, is the term what happens there. So it adapts to fast rates, mm -hmm. but only there where the stimulus is. So it, it's the adaptation to the fast <coughs> pulse rate that occurs. Occurs always if you have a fast rate there, but it is not universal for the neuron. The, the neuron does not adapt, but just the channel of that, that stimulus that comes in. That while other channels remain open in that. So presumably the other two cells are not doing this because if, if so, then... The, the other two cells don't do that. They respond they have, to male calls. They so respond they, to male calls. They have to, do they also respond to the... To the back, do they yes. just lack adaptation? They, or they, they lack ad lack adaptation. Uh, they, they also respond to the male call. They respond to everything. To everything. They're not uh, selective, temporally selective at all. Well... Of course, once you get beyond 200 hertz, all neurons are low-pass filters eventually, but uh, in that relevant range, they are not selective. They're, the, the temporal selectivity for male calls takes place in the brain. So, so how do those... Um, I mean, I know that uh, the, the novelty neuron is fascinating yeah. and interesting. It has to do with bad calls, and so it's yeah. cool. But I was just wondering about the other two neurons, because it seems like two neurons, only two neurons are left to tell the brain everything that it's going to know about right. all the other sounds that, the, in the, right, including right. the other Katie did sound. Right. And, and uh, it seems that the only behavioral response that you get is respond to conspecific males. 
Um, this is in the laboratory, not in a in a noisy ambient forest environment. I mean, in in both, you you get responses to to male. I mean, if they wouldn't, they obviously must find each other. Otherwise, they would be extinct. So so, so they uh, um, they don't do anything else to other signals in. So the brain probably filters out a lot of the stuff that's coming from those two neurons. It's not that those two neurons aren't enough. It's, it's maybe too much. If, if these two neurons are... Uh, so actually the two neurons are... One is a low frequency. The other one is a high frequency ah. neuron. In the typical KDD, the high frequency neuron is the one that's required for phonotaxis. Because that's where most KDDs call. And the low frequency one helps with that but is normally not required. In this group of candidates that we work with, where the male calls are limited to the low frequency range, the low frequency neuron is sufficient for phonotaxis. We, we've tested that in behavioral experiments, not by eliminating the neuron, but by, by just stimulating it. Only we stimulate that don't stimulate any of the other neurons. The high frequency neuron is neither helpful nor does it bother. It does, you cannot destroy the pattern by, by wrong signals in the high-frequency range. So they seem to have taken the high-frequency band completely out of communication. So they can be in their habitat, call it low frequencies, ignore everything as high-frequency, and are not bothered by anyone else calling. And in the low range, they are the loudest one, and they shut everyone else up just acoustically. There is no one else calling in this frequency range. And, and we had, we've done field recordings, and we heard beautifully the sounds. It was about how well do the sounds spread, and there was nothing else to hear. And we had this pulsed sounds that we wanted to have, and we came in the lab and we looked at it, and there was this <coughs> constant noise, 50 kilohertz in the background. There was a little Katie did sitting beside that, calling continuously, destroying our whole recordings. We couldn't do anything with that anymore. Uh, but our candidates wouldn't be, the neoconoceptors aren't bothered by that. And that might be actually why they are so uh, successful uh, ecologically in grasslands, in, in this habitat, where they are in that frequency band, the dominating calls, and then they are not bothered by ultrasound. There's another group of candidates calling in there. So in that respect, you're right. The two neurons might already be too much, and they've thrown one out. Um, it, it plays a little bit of a role during localization, seemingly when it gets so loud, the calls, that the low-frequency neuron gets saturated. Then that that neuron might contribute at really high amplitude levels, something, but you, we tried experiments that, like restoring, playing half the pattern at low frequencies and trying to restore the pattern with high frequency, the other neuron doesn't work, or destroying the pattern with high frequency doesn't work either. So that has to be out of the, the recognition that has been taken out of that. So let's, uh, let me just get back to the bad detector neuron, this, this neuron that detects novelty. What what would it you know from in a from a functional context yeah. what would it be doing? So you have essentially this there's this one or two neurons that are used for for essentially locating other right. males or for females yeah. to locate males and they perform phonotaxis yeah. with that. But you now have this bad detector neuron that's just basically essentially adapted out because it's it's not listening right. to the male calls and suddenly a novelty sound appears. Right. What then happens to subsequent downstream neural processing? Is anything known? Well, it's no, we don't. Well, we don't know anything at the neural level. So what we know is that when I do behavioral response, intensity response function, frequency response, and what what have you, test them and test the same things at TN one.
they do not overlap. They are correlated, but there's not a single parameter in TN1 responses that I can say if they make three spikes, they fall down or anything like that. So it, it, they are somewhere correlated, but TN1 is not the neuron that makes the decision. I can test behaviorally a bad cry every minute, play one to TN1, and add play one to every minute to the animal, and the animal responds three times, and then it doesn't respond to it anymore. Ah. So the behavioral response adapts yeah, very fast. TN1 does that for hours. It has no... Uh, so the adaptation of TN1 at a minute time scale is much lower than the behavioral one. So, so it's clearly not TN1 is not making the decision. In crickets, there's the ascending neuron making the decision about the behavior. If AN2, which is the cricket bat neuron, makes more than 200 spikes per second, they dive. Always. Always. It's a command neuron. The, 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 the primary sensory neuron has a command neuron function. You measure the spikes on AN2, you know what the cricket is doing. Um, two labs have described it with different methods. This is, is a very solid result. <coughs> we cannot do this. We not, cannot bring this together. So my model of that is uh, now short of that there are neurons that we just have never found, which of course is always a potential, but uh, we have looked too long for that. We actually expect there's anything else coming. Uh, would be that TN1 basically marks and says, here is something to evaluate. And then the pattern of all three neurons is evaluated and determines the response. And that would be if the high-frequency neuron is active and TN1, but not the low-frequency uh, neuron, then it's not a male call. And that could be a bat. If it's high and low-frequency active and TN1, then it's probably not a bat because they don't have low-frequency in them. So, so, so that's somewhere the pattern of all three together, or, or what the other neurons do at the time when TN1 fires, that could determine what the behavior actually, what, what, the, what the response is. So, so I, I set out and said TN1 is the bad neuron, and I still say that's the context in which it functions mostly, but it's not the bad detecting neuron, it's the change detecting neuron, and all neurons, I think, together determine whether it's a bad or not. Whether it's important for them or not, whether they think it's important. So you, you can trick them by being loud enough at low frequencies, you can get bad responses. So there, it's, it's not a purely spectral response that has... So are the other spurious low frequency sounds that can also cause... Because I've noticed that whenever I walk up to a bush to yeah. identify the KD there, yeah. the moment I go near it, it the thing just stops calling. Yeah, he says, and I'm not producing. I doubt. I'm. I'm not certain, but I doubt yeah. if my footsteps are producing. You know, I mean, we are noisy animals. Yeah, humans yeah. are noisy, but we not don't produce high frequency sound. So if you walk in grass, you make an awful lot of uh, ultrasound. If you ever walk with a bat detector, it's incredibly noisy. But actually, what I think why they stop then is the vibrations that you make, because when they sit, they are not really afraid of bat cries. Gleaning bats, so bats that passively localize insects, mm -hmm. echolocate so low that they don't hear it, that katydids don't hear that. Okay. So they defend themselves when they sit against vibration. And, and calling males sit in the grass relatively low, so where, they are, where you have to put, move grass around them to get to them. 
So a bath is not getting to them without heavily disturbing them and them diving to the ground. Non-calling animals, they sit at the very top of the grass, kind of at the uh, seats, seat heads and feet on them, and they are not bothered by anything. But calling males stop as soon as there is vibration. I'm sure that spiders actually sense vibration and of calling insects and approach that, that mice, shrews. Even biologists. Even biologists. <laughs> and so I think we are just too klutzy in our footsteps uh, down there, and that's why they stop there. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm just I'm just curious. So you are you are speculating that there is probably another com- another possibly command neuron that is essentially evaluating multiple these multiple inputs from right, these two right. neurons and it's using some combination of right. them. Now, it, in in frogs, it is known that if there is a mating call that occupies two distinct spectral bands, yeah. right? So low frequency, high yeah. frequency. Then there are these so-called combination sensitive neurons in the thalamus. Yeah. Which have this W-shaped yeah, right. tuning curve where you must activate both frequencies to get a really big. Right. Is band. there is 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 would that be some kind of a mechanism to fo- that to? would could very well be one. We don't know much about how what goes on in the brain. Um, there are probably two diff- two separate networks in the brain. There's the call recognition network and there is the bat detecting network. And the rules that they follow are very different. Um, the, bat, the male, the call recognizing network is probably just three synapses in the brain. So these ascending neurons, and then there's one, maybe one neuron only or a, a small group uh, that makes direct connections with the ascending neurons. And then there are probably just two sets of neurons, two layers of neurons driving each other. So three synapses in the brain before you're on the premotor center and have descending premotor neurons that determine walking speed and that. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it's doubtful whether the two sides actually interact in the brain with each other. So whether it's most likely that there is a right and a left pattern recognizer and that how well they recognize the pattern determines the walking speed on the other side and that's how you localize. So the two halves never know of each other. so there's not one pattern recognizer and one localizer, but it's... split brain uh, carriages. Yeah, except for then they don't get it down on the other side anymore. But but it yeah. seems to be that, that actually pattern re- that localization is based on the outcome of, rec- of recognition. So it's the quality of the signals, not the amplitude that determines where they walk. Uh, so that's the simplest model, and all physiological and morphological data indicates that. Where the bad network is, we don't know. And, and, and whether there those collaterals of the ANs going on, on that, and, and there is no data on that. So let me, let, me come, let me come back to this issue of phonotaxis. So phonotaxis is basically the ability to locate a sound, right. uh, orient yourself towards it, and then move towards it, right? So wh- how is it that a KD that localizes sound? It, it's, 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 how does its ear, I mean, we know that in, in all other animals yeah. that are able to locate sound, there are actually circuits in the brain that right. compute sound location. Right. It's not, it's not a, available at the right. ears. Right. How do KDDs do this? And are these neurons in some way also related to sound localization? So KDD ears have sound inputs on the right and left side of the thorax. And because typically the frequency is relatively high and the body is relatively big, they just have pressure 
receivers. Oh, so it's not a pressure gradient receiver like in frogs like or frogs. in crickets. Mm. Uh, it is they, but the, there are some that have pressure gradient receivers, but the typical katydid is a pressure receiver. So it's more like humans. In some it's more like humans. It's yes. two separate ears. Two separate ears. The uh, receptor neurons, when they project into the thorax, connect there with the ascending neurons, the ones that we talked about, and they connect with one neuron that crosses over and inhibits neurons on the other side. And including its mirror image, the so-called omega cell that does contralateral contra inhibition, contrast enhancement, mm -hmm. makes different in, in increases the amplitude difference on all ascending neurons. On all so it's essentially like a level detector. So it's basically like an inter, inter, inter or what we call interall level. I mean, there's it's a difference in the firing rate right. of the two neurons of the two right, sides. Right. And, and it uses that as a map. So when one goes up and the other goes down, right, it uses right. it to systematically map right, the space. Right. Uh, and then the uh, behavior is not the turn. So whether they turn right or left, if you if you play them to signals, so, so you uh, it, it's not the how loud does each ear is stimulated, but what is the quality of the signal that gets there? So if you play noise from above down, a bad tempo pattern, and play a good tempo pattern from the right side, the KD is going to turn to the left side. And that is because on the right side, no, wrong, I'm sorry, the experience other, you play the signal from above, the good signal from above, <coughs> the noise from the right side, and the KDD turns to the left. Because on the right ear, here's the signal from above and loud masking. The left side, here's the same signal oh, from above, but less masking, so the signal quality is higher. So you turn away from turn that. Away from most other systems will turn towards it because they have an, if you have one pattern recognizer in the middle and then you see which side is louder, if you have separate localizer, you will turn towards the noise. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do these split ex call experiments where you pay half the pulse rate from the, the right and the yeah. other half pulse rate from the left. And then if you lower one side, the KDD walks to the softer side because there it hears the soft pulse coming from that side, the loud pulse from the other side attenuated by the body in between. So it hears oh, soft, 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 and on the other side it hears loud, very soft, loud, very soft. So it goes to the better quality, oh, not to the better, not, not to the louder, louder signal. And that that's why the simplest model is that the two sides don't know each other. Each, the right side, fears, feeds into a pattern recognizer, the left side feeds into a pattern recognizer, and they drive the walking on the other side of the body. Okay. And so you... Besides that contrast enhancement that just makes the amplitude difference bigger, you don't, they don't need to talk to each other. Barbara Webb has done the modeling. This model cricket that localizes that mm -hmm. has this model. You do not need any... The two sides can be completely independent, and you find the sound source in that. So that, that's sufficient for them to do. And, and that's what we see. If there are two males calling at the same time in candidates, they do not choose one of them. Yes. They walk in the middle. And if one is more attractive because he's louder or he has the better pattern, then they walk 10 degree over to that side. Okay. And if it's two equal signals, and we've done it in field experiments, they walk, they're like they're four meters separated, they walk from six meters away, the females, and they walk in the middle, and then they go randomly right or left when they basically get between the speakers. They run into this plant and that push them over, and then this one gets louder and they get caught by it. But they are not aware that there are two signals. Right. 
So is it because it appears that it is coming from the medi medial plane? Well, I think because the two ears don't talk with each other. That would be that would be my the simplest explanation. As an evolutionary biologist working with insects, I'm leaning to I'm a fan of Occam's razor, right? So the the simple most is what I'm what fascinates me at this. How does that work when you have an extra dimension during flight, though, where you have they have no uh, azimuth elevation. They they don't hear elevation. We we don't either. Not really frogs. Well, it's not frogs. Computed. You could argue about it, it's computed from our, our filters in there, but yeah. but uh, uh, they, they they I would assume they just do it with uh, uh, sequential measurements. Uh, in the end, that's how we do it, how we do it, right? We we turn our head and and find it by that. So frog scan by head movement, yeah. body movement. Do katydids essentially sit in one? Are they a rigid body? Uh, how how do they scan? I mean, to get a better f- location fix, huh. do they scan? Well, they walk. So we test them on a walking compensator. This is the ball. They're freely moving. They're sitting freely moving on the top. And then motors spin the ball to right uh, that. And they are constantly walking, and they're zigzagging basically around the direction. It's very little deviation. Uh, so it's, it's when you watch them, you barely see it. You have to go... Fairly high resolution in there to actually see the the, the zigzagging uh, movement between that. Um, but they don't sit. They they're not making decisions. They're not sitting between the cars and say, "I walk over there." They walk to the direction that is dominated in the auditory scene. So that's why I'm saying they're not really doing solving the cocktail cards. They're listening to everyone and just someone dominates it, and that's kind of where they end up. And that. Dominating is amplitude, that's of course the most important thing, but it's also pattern quality. So if someone is closer to your pulse rate or is the leading call or whatever, the preference of the females is that dominates that more. So they have some kind of template of what their species-specific call yes. sounds like. Well, not. So how is that implemented? They well, that's, that's really... That, that's what pays the college education of my kids are hopefully the project. <laughs> that's really the big project in the lab that we're working on is, is what are, how is pattern recognition implemented in the nervous system and how does it diversify between species. Um, so it seem, seem to be very few neurons involved in it. We think it's three steps beyond the ascending neurons where this selectivity is generated. Um, each species has only a single temporal filter. So they, they respond to pulse rate, to the conspecific pulse rate and not higher and lower rates, or other species to the conspecific pulse duration. And then they don't care about rate. Or, and they, so they seem to have, each species seems to have a single filter in the brain. Uh, those change. We have some ideas about some of the filters, how they might be how they are implemented based on psychophysical experiment. Several species that recognize pulse rates use neural resonance. Uh, others have an integrating filter in that. Uh, we make some argument, evolutionary argument, why we think that the resonance is actually intrinsic to the cells. It's not a network resonance, but it's a, a cell resonance. So think uh, not half-center oscillator pattern generator, but pacemaking cell. Intrinsic resonance versus network resonance. And we, we think it's actually an intrinsic resonance. So it's a biophysical property of the membrane. 
uh, and ion channels, right? Active and passive properties of of the cell rather than of the synaptic connectivity uh, of that. Um, and one of the arguments of that is sibling species recognize very different parameters. It's not one responding to 20 pulses per second and one to 30. It's the one response to 20 pulses per second and the 30 response to gap durations shorter than five milliseconds. Or the, the sibling wants 100 pulses per second, they want 20 millisecond pulse duration. Not what we think of sexual selection, gradually something different. And so my idea is that adding or subtracting an ion channel changes the physical the properties of a neuron dramatically. If you have no uh, H channel anymore, then resonance is gone. You need you need a hyperpolarization activated depolarizing channel as a resonating channel. If you take that out, your neuron is an integrator, uh, and that this might actually underlie the diversification of the recognition system. So rather than rebuilding the neural circuit, you're better off substituting channels. Is that is that would that be an well? I'm not saying better off. This is not how evolution works, but it's more likely. I, I think there's extreme. Uh, well, I don't know how easy it is to change networks and to, to, to get additional right. right right. So so getting recurrent inhibitions or whatever you would need for for this in there, but but rather than changing time constants in the nervous system, there's there should be extreme stabilizing selection on keeping time constants the same, because if you would change time constant and pattern recognition, you affect time constants in your heart rhythm and your breathing rhythms in your pattern generators for walking and might affect those, and the selection should keep those constant. It might be easier to express an ion channel or not express it in a group of neurons. So there might be more flexibility at this developmental level than actually changing ion channels or whatever that would change um, a time constants. So have these channels been identified? No. Do we know? No. Huh. But that's, nice. that. I mean, that's kind of the inherent disadvantage of the non-model system you have. Uh, I mean, the, the, the great advantage of our system is that we have all this genetic diversity, which is meaningful genetic diversity because it's actually working in the field. There are 25 species that do that, and there are 10 different temporal filters that we have identified so far. Um, but, of course, you don't have a genome of Cadiz, right. right? This is just also like you have that. On the other hand, we've planning a project on the population genetics of them and we plan in three years to sequence 10 species and it should be down by that time to a couple of thousand dollars per species. I mean, the cost comes down so dramatically fast and the the, the annotation algorithms of genomes. So we, we want to compare their simple sequences, just look for candidate loci by, by looking at sequence without knowing what the sequence means. Uh, but even the annotation algorithms getting so more effectively that maybe with a cockroach genome and having the sequence from the candidates, we are able to annotate relatively easily 70% of the loci or something like that. So that would allow you to get a handle on? So I'm, I'm hoping that I'm going to still witness that in my active academic career, that the gen genomic tools catch up with the non-model system. And I think this is, uh, I talked with, with people working on whatever trisophila things there and I said so what I write in the grant for that he said don't write which method you want to use because in three years it's a new one just say that today you could do it with this 
and that would cost but 7,000 per, per individual to do, but in three years when we have them all collected and the grant is funded, it, there's something else and it's gonna be faster and cheaper. So I don't, but but that's why we don't know anything about this right. yet. And, and, yeah. and there might be ways of getting into that, um, but at this point we're, we're still making <coughs> simple evolutionary models and, and logical models without really having much data. So you know, in in a higher in uh, I hate to use the term higher and lower, but in in vertebrates and particularly in mammals, we have this tremendous number of parameters that are being extracted from a song. Right, gap, duration, you know, frequency, sweep frequencies, yeah. frequency modulation, so forth. So it's it's a huge numbers of and which perhaps explains the complexity of these circuits. Mm -hmm. So what you are, from what I understand, you're saying is that these in 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 candidate species and in general in in, in and the sub and the different sibling species that essentially only one or two parameters are basically attended to. Right. That they are the ones that provide salient information about about other callers. Whether it's the male of their own species or not. Uh, right. uh, and can you confuse them by, for example, swapping duration with, with rate? And, you know, one favors duration, let's say the other favors rate. Well, this, is, them this is how we learn how, um, what they're attending to. So when we have a new species and one call recognition is our main interest in, in the lab. So the first thing is that we do that we test them with a male call that we recorded and see how they respond. And then we make artificial models that are square pulses and sine waves in them until we have one that is just as attractive just as the male call. This is what you mean by filters, when you're talking about filters. Well, this is how we measure the filter. So we first make a signal, a art completely artificial signal, uh, that is as attractive as the male call. And then we vary that in every possible way. I mean, that we test 300 different stimuli <coughs> in a single species at an end of 10 individuals and get very detailed response fields or response spaces of what stimuli the females respond to and which ones they don't. And then when you, you know, when the pulse rate changes, you change the pulse duration, the interval duration, and the rate. So when you do same duty cycle, different rates, you don't know whether they respond to the pulse duration, interval duration, or right. to the rate, uh, or to the number of pulses per second, which is rate, can be the pattern of the rate, right? Uh, so, uh, but by then keeping, varying all those parameters independently of each other, mm -hmm. the number of experiments that you have to run goes up dramatically. So, uh, but, but you get then a clear idea of what they're actually attending to, and then you can make really weird stimuli to actually go to the neural basis. So you can ask whether there's a resonant properly underlying rate recognition, if it rate recognizes right. species, then they would <coughs> respond better at half the rate than an intermediate rate. Or you can play wrong pulses at the wrong time and destroy the resonance by that. So so there are then predictions that you can make and test psychophysically or non-invasive neuroscience or what we call it sometimes um, to, to get actually in the hypothesis what what's going on in the filter or how the filter might do that. So the term filter then is really refers to a parameter like duration or rate or gap. That's how we determine the, the okay. filter and there is, there's got to be a neural equivalent, equivalent to that that, that right. does the processing. Okay. Well, um, 
That was a fascinating discussion, and thank you very much for being with us, Johannes. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on our campus, and uh, thanks to all the panel members for an interesting discussion. And that's all the news from UTSA, where the science is excellent, <laughs> the discussions are rather entertaining, and our guests, the best of scholars. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me.